Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of 20-year conversational AI veteran and OneReach.AI CEO, Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversations we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the changing nature of user research and the importance of keeping real humans at the center of the process. How the future role of the designer is going to be all about solving increasingly complex problems and how critical curation is becoming in a world that's flooded with content. Our guests this week are Sarah Gibbons and Kate Moran of Nielsen Norman Group. As the vice president of NNG, Sarah's work in service design has set industry standards, and here she expands on insights from a recent exploration of anthropomorphism and generative AI. Also a renowned expert in the space, Kate Moran is VP of Research and Content and has done extensive work in interaction design. As leaders at a vanguard firm that's been at the forefront of experience design for decades, we were eager to talk with Sarah and Kate about all the activity happening at the intersection of UX and AI. If you dig this conversation, I'd also encourage you to check out our episode with Don Norman, one of the ends in NNG, from season one. Right now, however, enjoy this lively discussion with Sarah Gibbons and Kate Moran. All right, well, uh, Kate and Sarah, welcome to the podcast. We are really excited for this conversation. Yeah, we're happy we're to be here. Excited to be here. Yeah, and uh, and Rob, it's a pleasure as always seeing you. Back in this at little you. window. Yeah. Uh, so so I feel like there's so much we can talk about. Uh, Sarah, we were both really intrigued by your article on anthropomorphism. And Kate, uh, I heard you talking about ROI as it relates to UX, and I really we kind of want to dig into that too. Yeah. But I thought to kick it off. Um, we could just talk a bit about the role of AI within UX. It's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but Rob and I kind of see conversational AI as the next phase of experience design. And we'd just love to hear your thoughts and findings about how designers you know, are using these tools in their process, but then also how they are designing the experiences that people are having with generative AI. Yeah, this is definitely a big topic at Nielsen Norman Group right now. Um, lots of people in the UX community look to us for guidance on best practices and kind of down-to-earth practical ways to um, to improve their design work and their research work. So this is something we're actively investigating. Uh, and I think there's a lot of different facets that we could look at this from. Um, you know, maybe we could start with what you said, Josh, about conversational um, AI as being like kind of a, a new interaction um, paradigm, I guess you could say. That definitely seems to be uh, a big topic right now. And there are a lot of potential applications for conversational AI. Um, I do think some, some folks in the UX community, though, are losing sight of the fact that a conversation is pretty limited. There are things it's it's really good for, but uh, there are lots of of cases where that's not gonna that's not going to be the best method for achieving whatever it is the user is trying to accomplish. So one of the big issues that um, we've been studying right now with uh, with like ChatGPT, for example, is there actually is too much of a reliance on conversation, and there needs to be 
more UI features and in, in interaction with the uh, with the text, for example, in the responses. Sarah, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, I, I we're at a really interesting moment because we are learning how to interact with new technology under heavy limitations, which is this transaction based interaction that we can pretend is like a conversation, but really it's demands, right? And that changes not only user behavior, but how we even think about its role. And we've talked about this for decades, but a conversation is only as good as what the user knows. And so they're just inherently limited. And when we talk about conversational AI, at least I've seen a ton of things about, you know, inclusivity and it being able to make a lot more things accessible to the masses. But what you forget is the masses have to know not only how to use it, but the right things to ask and the actual language. And so we actually published an article about this and we're calling it their articulation barrier, which is that uh, in order to be able to even interact right now, I uh, you have to be able to know how to articulate what you need. And uh, it, it's a fluency thing, right? Because you can use plain language, but that plain language may not actually give you back what you want. I was actually watching a user test yesterday. We're doing some really interesting user research with mid-journey uh, and, and image creation. And our user said, you know, isn't it funny when it makes a liar out of you? And I just thought that was such a great so quote. And this user actually had a lot of great quotes, like, I'm going to throw a paintbrush against the wall and see how wide it, see how wide it splatters. And it's, and it's this really interesting thing where I think everyone, even expert users, even if they're using what they know as, you know, plain language and what will kind of prompt, you never really know what you're getting back. And so it's interesting. It's an interesting time to be here in, yeah. in this field, playing with this new technology and I, all of our interactions with it being so limited in what I believe is going to actually be uh, the future yeah. of this technology. One of, the, one of the best examples of that articulation barrier that Sarah mentioned um, happens to be related to things like mid-journey and image creation, where if you want to get a very precise visual style, you have to be familiar with what that visual style is called, or at mm -hmm. least be able to reference an artist or some some existing version of what you're aiming to produce. And that isn't something that the majority of people, unless you're like a art historian or, uh, you know, somebody who, who spends a lot of time studying art is going to be able to do very easily. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had this really cool conversation with Mike Lee. He's a, he's actually a food, kind of a food and technology journalist, but he, he made the comment that he had found a service that was selling prompts. And he's pretty then, interested in training LLMs and stuff. So we bought a few prompts, but that's what they were for is like a buying a prompt that would give you a, a work of art in the style of a specific artist. Mm -hmm. What a horrible user experience that is, that in order to get what I want from this technology, I have <laughs> to go buy the prompt that I need to give it. Uh, that's a pretty wild marketplace that's starting to be created that then is going to be extinct once oh, yeah. uh, the user experience gets better. For sure. The other yeah, yeah. issue, the other issue that comes up with, um, with specifically conversational AI, is um, also something that makes it a really exciting time to be a user experience researcher right now. Which is that 
most people have no frame of reference for what this is and how it works and what it can do. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of people, especially when they first get started with these conversational tools, really treat it just like search. So just typing in keywords, which of course, anybody who has spent time playing with conversational AI knows that's the exact wrong way to use it. <laughs> you want to have more context and more information about what you're looking for and generally more details in those prompts to get what you want. Um, so that's one major limitation is people are, are really just trying to wrap their minds around what is this? What, what can it do for me? Yeah. And we see ways that, that companies like ChatGPT and Perplexity and other AI tools are trying to work around this, especially in giving those suggested prompts, those like ideas uh, to sort of plant that seed for this is how you talk to this Gen AI system. But it's still, it's a really difficult challenge for these designers, these teams yeah. working on these products. Yeah, I, 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 I liken it to the like scomorphic phase of graphic design when we used to make the buttons have drop shadows and the calculators looked like physical calculators. And we spent all this time as designers trying to replicate real world um, objects to make them familiar, you know, and, and, and then at some point we're like, why, why are we doing this? This yeah. makes no sense. Like we have this benefit of a screen that can conjure up, you know, anything. Why do we need a calculator that looks like a calculator? Why doesn't it just look like a spreadsheet? It's so um, funny. It's easier for people to understand. I literally wrote that exact thing in the anthropomorphism article that I published. Uh, you know, we asked the question, well, like, why do people have to treat this like a human? It's right. because they don't know how else to treat it. Right. And it, it's like a phase actually, we all have to go yeah. through, you know, to, One of to the, go, oh, I'll just talk to it like a person. I think where it falls down is then, but then they look at use cases that replicate only conversations. So they're like, how do I apply this in my business? Oh, let me go automate conversations that are happening between humans um, and then they get lost because the real opportunity is in automating interactions that they're already having with computers um, that are really like antiquated because they're like you know they're more about um, you know this sort of geographic uh, geospatial area of of our brain where we're saying how do I get this done? Oh, go to this menu, go down to that thing, then go to the right, then see in the bottom corner. Yeah, click that thing. Then you'll see a new window, go to the top. And it's like someone explaining you how to get to the post office, right? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And you, when all you want to do is say, hey, how do I, you know, how do I turn echo cancellation off? And then it's done. I just did it, <laughs> you know? And we go, oh, it's, it's a navigation tool. Like, right. Let's let's put that on the list of things LLMs can help with navigation. And now, as designers, we go, you have a navigation problem. LLM is in your toolkit. Look at that; it might help solve that problem. And then you just go through that punch list of of yeah UX challenges that LLMs you know can be good and help us solve. Um, but I think the the key is everybody going, oh, you know let's focus on use cases that reduce, you know, conversations with other humans 
Those are complicated. But, That's the stuff we couldn't solve in UX. I think um, I think that this this does have a lot of parallels to schemorphism. So the the purpose of schemorphism was to help people translate their real world physical understanding of the analog world to this digital space. And so that's why we have these, you know, buttons that looked like buttons. And that was both a limitation um, kind of imposed on users and also imposed by users. So we we had to use skeuomorphism to help people understand, but that also limited designers in terms of the the range of different interactions that they could be providing for people. So I think the same thing is happening here with AI. Um, and one thing in particular related to skeuomorphism that Sarah and I were talking about and that she wrote about in this anthropomorphism article, what is the the fact that a lot of people are using roles with their conversational AI tools. So they'll say, be my copy editor, be my travel planner, be my, you know, the financial advisor or whatever. And um, that's really more for them in many cases than it is for the AI. So in some of the research we've we've been doing, we've been looking at these different strategies that people are using to interact with these tools. And that's a very common one, but it doesn't seem to produce any better results than just asking for the output. Right. Um, so that's kind of where people are like trying to grasp onto what is this thing, you know, well, maybe if I envision it as my financial advisor, that'll give me some kind of traction in terms of figuring out what I can talk to it. Well, I also think what's happening is previously, you know, when you're interacting with one tool, it's there for a specific purpose. And then you have many tools for many different purposes. And what's happening and going to continue to happen is these all converging into one tool. And so the this like, context shifting, role setting, I think has a lot to do. And our, you know, at NNG, we're really focused on studying user behavior, not, you know, the the models, because that's a whole, obviously, realm of thought. But user behavior wise, what's allowing that person to do is recognize that their context shifting within the same tool. And I think that that is really fascinating in general is, is this convergence of I uh, many needs into one and then the user that context shift being on the user and not within the tool uh, yeah. in general I think context is like the yeah it's the key point because when you're you know saying you're my financial advisor you're just narrowing the context you're just narrowing the lens right um but then you're saying like barely right so it, like it, not so much that it provides this like massive uh, difference, but enough to say more context will make this thing more useful. And when you're a designer, context is like one of those things you almost take for granted. You just, oh, I'm on this page. Oh, now I go to that page. And, and the context is sort of just assumed by the end user, just by the geography of it, right? I've gone from here over to here and and therefore the user has followed the context and is now, you know, maintaining context and the system, there's not like this thoughtful moment of like, oh, what context are we in? Oh, let's change context or there's just conversations about, should that be its own page or not? Yeah, maybe that should be its own page. Um, and now we're talking about like consciously thinking 
about context and when to change and how to change and how narrow we want the context and how wide we want. And it's like, it's like this nanoscope from a, you know, magnifying glass view of navigation and contextualizing. And it's also goes from a hierarchical, like I'm on this page that is a sub page of this other page, um, to an ontology, a total on like real on, you know, ontology where, where context is, you know, a single button could exist in 50 different contexts, essentially like putting the same button on 50 different pages and 50 different ways to get to that page. Um, Maybe yeah, even there's a like complexity there, right? Yeah, yeah, because because the the conversational interface can can free us in some ways from a GUI interface and some of the limitations there. But then that also strips away a lot of the context. Yeah, it adds this well, complexity to the designer. Like it, it was, there's safety in constraints, right? I I think we're going to see a high. A high there's no other way I foresee than just moving more and more into hybrid, where we're seamlessly mixing conversational yeah. with um, some type of kind of interface support. Yeah. And I Micro think UIs, actually, totally. Yeah, yes. and I think thinking about a user's competency and how much uh, those UIs need to step up for some users or step down for others, I, I think is going to be really interesting. And then, Rob, to your point, this whole mental model context uh, and as designers, how we communicate it, how we set it, how we allow for control by the user is going to be completely uh, rethought. And I think it's really exciting to think about it over the next three to five years, even how these kind of different mental models of context are going to evolve. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's probably some really exciting work that's going to be done in the space. So I, I think this is why, like what I mentioned earlier, there, there are situations where conversational interaction patterns are not really best suited to, to what is needed. And so this this is kind of getting to that that point. Um, and I, I think a good concrete example, we use the Grammarly app uh, at Nielsen Norman Group to speed up our, our editing because it can just catch, you know, some of those little grammar mistakes or typos pretty easily. Um, they have an AI revision tool. So if I am writing an article in Word, I can highlight a section of my text and I can ask Grammarly to revise it. Now I have to say the that tool is not very good right now. The free <laughs> rates we're getting from that tool are, are not great. Um, but I think that is that interaction style is much more useful and easier and um, certainly easier for people to wrap their heads around versus let me copy all of this text, paste it into like a chat GPT and then ask it to revise. So I think we are going to see more of those sort of seamless interactions or integrations of AI into existing interfaces where the context is provided both for the, the AI tool and for the user to understand yeah. what to do with it. The way we've explained it, and <clears throat> this is sort of a, a, a bit of a, an opinion at this, at this moment, um, a prediction, but um, I think it's backed up with a lot of data that supports it. And that is that... Um, there's two phases coming. The first is this point solution phase, which is what you're referring to. This is generative AI enters the tools we use today. And we can liken that to schemorphism. Like, what do you mean my get rid of my email client? That's not going to happen. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the easiest tool to use right now is the tool we already know. Even if 
someone created one that's that's 10 times easier to learn, it's still the tool we know is still going to be easier, right? So people are going to say, well, that's not going to replace my my email client, but it's going to replace the next piece of software that they don't know, that they don't want to learn, right? And they just, that's a hard thing to wrap your head around. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of this where you're going, which is that first we see generative in our email tool, and then we see a word component micro UI in our conversation. And then you go, hey, I just want to let blah, blah, blah know that the meeting is going to be, you know, rescheduled. Um, and then that just pops up a little window that allows us to edit. And and we don't care if they email it. Like nobody cares the method in which it, like the idea that we we care how a communication gets from point A to point B is something I think we'll laugh at later. You know, it's, I think about the telephony industry and the different ways that you can make a telephone call. Like there's different technologies like SIP and PSTN and, and, and WebRTC. And I just imagine like introducing that to users and saying, oh, can you WebRTC? Now, actually, I think I prefer to use PST. Now, maybe I'll SIP call them. Like, why are we, why are we referring to the protocols that are used by the machines on how to communicate? Like, that's ridiculous. And, I, and so there's a moment where just letting somebody know, let the AI figure out how to let them know. I don't want to, I don't want to memorize protocols. So I, I think, think you're, this is, oh, go ahead, Kate. Go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I, this is the role of the future designer. I, I think that there's a lot of fear right now around AI and designers. Uh, and what AI is going to replace and maybe reduce the need for. And it's really interesting because, of course, our medium is going to change. And I've always said it, it doesn't really matter what your design what your design medium is. I think there are a lot of people are designers and we all just have different mediums. Um, Kate's is definitely uh, writing and content and mine tends to be more traditional design. And I think the design... The designer is is good at co solving complex problems, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And the way in which we solve them, and the medium in which we solve them, and the manifestation of the solutions is all going to be right. extremely evolved. But the role, I think, actually becomes even more important uh, yeah. than it is now. So I, I could almost say, uh, and you know, this is me being a jerk, but um. We're not really in the UX community. We're not really solving most of the problems that we think we're solving because most of the people don't use software that they buy. Like most of the features in Excel don't get used. Most of the features that are designed don't get used because because traditional UIs are so freaking antiquated and difficult for most people. Most of the you know apps on our phone don't get used. Most of the apps in the app store don't get used like a, a lot of designers design stuff that never never get used or get used very infrequently and so we think we're solving problems in the world but we're actually not and maybe now we'll actually start solving problems in the world <laughs> now that now that people can actually use the software and the machine effortlessly and just say hey i want to crop an image and a micro ui comes up 
with a little cropper in it and you don't have to look at 10,000 other features to find the cropper. You're just like, it's right here. And, and that that micro UI was custom designed to be in context for that task you're doing. Um, then maybe we'll actually be successful at our jobs most of the time, instead of most of the time fail at our jobs, telling ourselves that we're actually, you know, doing a good job. And that in the end, potentially, I believe that within the next five years, almost all of our software UIs will be replaced with micro UIs and conversation. And that means there's a lot of freaking work to do. <laughs> because so, I think we'll triple yeah. the amount of software we have and the amount of UIs we have and and replace all the ones we've made over the last 20 years in five. But that's, you know, that's Rob, my opinion. I think you're, I think you, you, you're probably right. I think that is the direction we're looking at in the, you know, medium future. Um, and I think, Sarah, you're right about how that's going to impact design work. Um, what, what I'm curious about, though, is what happens in the interim for users. So we've already seen in the last decade that the pace of technology is moving much faster than the majority of people can keep up with it, can keep yeah, pace yeah. with it. Um, this is already a problem. I mean, we still have people who don't really know how to use their mobile phones. And I think this is this is something that we in UX and in tech are like chronically losing sight of, which is we are not representative of the majority of people right. and the way they think and behave. And so, so Rob, when you say now people can just say, you know, this is what I want and it'll figure it out. I do think that will be beneficial for, you know, every user in the future, but I am imagining we're going to go through a period of a lot of discomfort as people who are not early adopters are forced to adapt to this. Yeah. So, you know, from a design perspective, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's an email client. What matters is the communication. And so if we have an AI that can figure out how to deliver that, you know, in the most intuitive, easiest way, that's great. Um, but people are going to balk at that change. And there is going to be some so much yeah resistance because and confusion. Back to well, the, like, people, the easiest UI is the one you know already, no matter how yes. long it took you to learn it. And, and that's, people will white knuckle that plus our jobs are so tied to our capability to understand the antiquated ui like oh do you know this tool oh i'm an expert in that tool oh that's why you keep your job because you know the deep dark art of using it <laughs> and that's a reason to hang on to it too if you're fearful of of the idea of ai taking over your job yeah. which i think is probably prevalent in some of those users that are slower to adopt I think it's going to be prevalent in every industry. I think I think we're going to see this resistance. Yeah. Um, it's going to be the GPS all over again. Oh no, I I use my map. I don't you know, use that thing. <laughs> Taxi yeah, drivers that... going. Oh no no, there's nothing. No, there's nothing that could replace memorizing the streets. <laughs> yeah. So so um, Sarah and I sometimes get into discussions about. AI with Jacob Nielsen, one of the co-founders of Nielsen Norman Group, and and he is very optimistic about the impact of AI on society. And I largely think that's true. But again, in the short term, I think this is going to be really disruptive to the way a lot of people not only work, but live. Um, 
And there are going to be people who are getting left behind who have that resistance who say, like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to mess with that. That's scary. That's intimidating. I don't even know how to use it. Um, And I I worry. It's just weird. They might get left behind by the people who don't who are not technology savvy. Yes. Yes. It's going to bring up the bottom. (laughs) It is. Right. Exactly. I think that it's it's gonna be it's gonna make below average or average uh, people I think above average uh, and then I think the above average people are going to have a decision to make uh, in general and that's aqua- across the workforce and across different industries I think in tech we're quickest to realize it because we're kind of naturally curious about these types of technologies but healthcare finance. I mean, there's a ton of stuff about meteorologists recently, right? So, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about it being uh, somewhat of a, a level set for a lot of yeah. contributors. Uh, and I think also looking at developing countries um, with really big workforces like India uh, or China, it, it's going to significantly change their ability to participate especially if language is a barrier so i think that's really interesting to think about as well uh in that level set it not just being within a vertical of practitioners but it also being kind of a level set across the world yeah that's a great uh, in terms of point, countries Sarah. i think that's um you know that's something i so i have a background in um information science and human computer interaction and i remember long, long time ago, being in grad school and having debates about, you know, discussing how siloed the the internet is and the fact that the world's knowledge is, a lot of it has been kind of locked up in in English. Um, and so, you know, somebody who speaks Chinese is unable to access all that knowledge and vice versa. That's something that we certainly think a lot about at Nielsen Norman Group because we try to serve an international audience. But we're a really small team. We don't have support to translate all of our content into all these different languages. So seeing some of the recent advancements in AI translation is really encouraging and exciting to me to be able to break apart those silos and have the world's information more easily accessible by everyone. Yeah, I think also, um, you know, again, this is a prediction in terms of where I think things are going. And I think a lot of folks in, in the AI space, and my colleagues agree with this, and that is by design, not by necessity, we're going to, as humans, want to be in the loop on the decisions that these systems make. We want to make sure they run it past us, even if it's just to feel a sense of agency and happiness in our lives. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about is, you know, our happiness, not machines happiness. And, um, and I sort of imagine this like almost hot or not life, you know, where you're like left swipe left or swipe. you're just making decisions in this rapid, rapid way during your day. So you're not having to do most of the work, but you are like, okaying and, and, and then denying, like the AI says we should you know, maybe send out a post on blah, blah, blah. And you're like, nope, but how about this? Oh, yep. <laughs> and and we're just going to sort of be in this mode of being deciders of our own destiny and fate, but also, you know, as a group, you know, the the sort of fate is us 
of us as teams. And those people that, as you point out, are critical thinkers will still be really important in, 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 you know, being in the loop and having those decisions, um, not be, you know, bad ones. So the AI will, will do a good job of curating decisions for us so that it doesn't present us with horribly bad ones. And I think that's great. Those guardrails are really fun and interesting to think about, but then within, you know, now we have a bowling ball, you know, bowling alley with the guards up. So there's no gutters. But we still get all this room, you know, to throw the ball, and yeah. and so we're sitting there each day just making decisions, um, because that's what we like to do. We like to feel in control, and we like to make decisions, and we like to feel like the things we decided dictated our futures and and the good of our families, our groups, ourselves. And so maybe we're just sitting there, just like making decisions all day long. Um, <laughs> Because the AI, like, should I buy more ink for your printer? Like, yep. Norm- do we? Do I need to ask? No, it could probably make that decision on its own. Will you want it to do it automatically? Maybe. Maybe not. Well, yeah. We we often see. Um, yeah, I I totally agree with you, Rob. That that people want that sense of control. That actually reminds me of a conversation I had with um, a researcher, like maybe six or so years ago. Who is working on some researching some early self-driving um, semi-truck technology, and he was telling me about how they they were conducting these studies, and the drivers seemed pretty like calm and like they trusted the you know the self-driving um, capability in the simulator. But then when they would watch, uh, they put a camera down by the pedals, and they would see that the majority of the drivers would keep their foot hovered over that pedal. So okay, they wanted that <laughs> sense of like, but if something goes wrong, I'm I'm right here, I'm ready. Um, so I I think that's likely, Rob, that people will want that kind of oversight and control at least in the beginning. But maybe over time, you know, people will become more comfortable with trusting these systems well, to I make those choices. People's definition of control is going to change. You know, the the beauty with all of this is none of these are new design principles, right? User control and freedom is one that's been around for 25 years as a heuristic. And I think thinking about how, I, I think actually, you know, Rob, control in the decision is maybe the most tangible way we even think about control, but there's so many other layers to control that are going to come up and evolve. And I think our idea of control uh, will, I think, uh, move past the idea of, you know, these discrete decisions being made and it'll be control of principles, control of my data, control of what it participates in or not, what it references or not. Um, and I think that's interesting is that if you think about all these de- design principles or heuristics, uh, they're all still going to be there, but how we perceive them and and their um, what they impact and kind yeah. of the definition of each of those are going to equally yeah. evolve. And that's cool. Yeah. I think that that's really exciting yeah, and, to think about. And I think you make a really good point. Like this idea that it's control as an experience, um, not control right. out of necessity, right? It's it's we designed these decisions into the process to make to make the experience better, not because the yeah. machine needed it, right? But so, because the human needed it. Yeah. Like so it here's an interesting. Here's an interesting question. Uh, Jacob and I just had a debate. We published an article about it, which is, is does artificial empathy, so empathy that um, AI creates or builds in, 
count as empathy. And it's a really interesting discussion uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, you, you could kind of discuss why why it may be valuable, um, which kind of Rob comes back to like how we make the user feel. Uh, it could also be, you could also talk about the burden it may decrease on people who are true subject matter experts, like a doctor yeah. or like a mental health uh, provider yeah. uh, delivering that expertise yeah. and, and it being layered in with AI. And it's a really interesting idea of like the decisions that are going to be made with AI and who yeah. who we're doing them for yeah. uh, and and how they get applied. Yeah, we've covered this a lot. Um, and I think the this sort of place we've landed on it is um, is a potato chip does a does eating potato chips make you feel full? Um, if you're already full, no. Uh, if you're starving, yes. Is it is it is a potato chip better than nothing? Yeah. Um, is it good healthy food? No. And that's empathy from a machine. It's a potato chip, so it's to some, some calories. that are starving they're going to they're going to they're going to love it right they're going to feel it they're going to enjoy it it's going to be like if you're in a old folks home and you're being ignored then then it's it's going to be like ha finding a bag of potato chips um you know on a deserted island you know oh my god these taste amazing um but then for those who who are rich with human experience and human connection it's going to feel like junk food um, and so I yeah. think, you know, where's the, where is the but, place in our society for potato chips? So, um, yeah, that's what I was about to say. It's not quite black and white, right? Like I would say I'm, you know, I generally am super nutritious in my eating if we're carrying on the metaphor, but there are certain, certain places that I've never thought about, you know, maybe needing to be nutritious or there's not a huge value needed there, um, right now. But, you know, right. there could be. And so I think that that's the more interesting thing is that this like gray area that is going to evolve because it can yeah. now. Well, there's also this so idea, too, that by kind of stripping out some of the tedium in our daily lives through automations that use conversational AI, we might make more room for actual human empathy. People might have more time yeah. to interact with one another in more meaningful ways. Like I feel like now seems like a lot of our interactions are sort of like clouded <laughs> by technology yeah, in a way. Like we think that by, you know, DMing over Facebook, we're staying in touch, but that's just a, a small sliver of, in, of like the depth of human interaction that I think we're I do worry like about chips, the, right? I do worry about that as like a convenient substitute to deep emotional connection to a real human being that feels good enough um, that you maybe feel like you don't need to take action to get that you know, get that nutritious, <laughs> nutritious. Uh, yeah. I also worry about some of the side effects like, and, and you know, maybe, um, maybe folks smarter than me who are working on these AI systems will figure this out. But like, uh, you know, sycophancy issues, for example, like the tendency of these systems to say whatever's going to make you feel good, even if that's not what you need to hear. Like if you're telling a friend about a uh, a problem or, a, you know, let's say like a conflict you're having with someone else, they might say, you know what it sounds like? Maybe you. <laughs> you're the problem. You know, you're, you're the problem. <laughs> um, is an AI uh, friend going to be able to do that? You know, and I, I guess maybe also part of this is colored by like, I've seen news stories like that, you know, that young kid who tried to assassinate the Queen of England because his AI girlfriend told him it was a good idea. Like, I, I just do worry about those those consequences. I 
I think, though, that similar to the kind of Gen Z alpha approach to filters, it we don't actually know how users are going to react and there may be a pendulum shift um, because, you know, prior to filters, everyone, you know, at the dawn of Instagram, everyone applied a filter and now, you know, the whole, you know, Gen Z and uh, alpha aesthetic is anti-filter and anti-posed and and that's a whole separate user behavior that was born out of this evolution of technology yeah. and social media. And I think, you know, that's a really obviously discreet and rather topical example. But I do think that with such large shifts like we're seeing, is it's, it becomes much harder yeah. to predict how users will react. Yeah. Well, one thing we know, one thing we know about people is that they love stories. I mean, we love stories. That's we, we, uh, we buy need based stories. on stories. Um, we don't buy beer because of the taste. We buy beer because of the story that's been sold to us as to who we will be when we drink it. We buy cars because of the story that we're told about who we will be when we drive it. Um, people, a part of our connectivity, if not most of our connectivity is co-creation and most of what we co-create verbally is stories and the story behind both all of us on this call um starts to emerge as we talk and as people see our facial expressions and we reveal details about ourselves and and we start inventing the backstory for each of us and 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 the forward story right um ai's don't have a story there's nothing in, there's no like, where were you born? There, those, it's like watching, you know, robots race in the Olympics. Like there's no story. We want to, we want the underdog to overcome. Like we just, we, there's no way we're letting go of our storytelling and our desire to hear stories. And I think building those stories in our minds as we, as we see and interact with other people, that's a big ingredient to what is nutritious about connectivity right um and i don't i'm sure there will be ais with backstories we see it with gaming right but but they are artificial backstories i mean just like yeah sure the olympics of robots racing each other and fighting each other um yeah yeah it's could a, that lack it's of story a real be thing, an entertainment but it, it doesn't compare to the fact that you know, we want to see real people. So will the Formula One be self-driving cars? No. There may be another race, but it'll always have to be a human in there because we want the story. We love stories. Well, yeah, Rob, I wonder if like in a design setting, if that lack of story could be advantageous. I think it ties into anthropomorphism. If you're trying to not deceive people or mislead them into thinking they're speaking with something human, the lack of a story is sort of advantageous, but then there's the other side of it where like in your article, Sarah, like the, the role play thing was fascinating, right? Like yeah. if people discern that this, um, generative model is, is like an expert in a certain area, they're, they're more comfortable speaking with it. They kind of know where to start with it, but then it's kind of easy to see how that would evolve into that, that, uh, companionship role that you identify where, where they build friendships. Because if you have well, like the, the Grammarly example, right? Like if you have that in your writing window and initially it's just kind of correcting for general grammar, but then 
maybe it starts to build an awareness of your writing style. It's looked at some of your other writing and it starts providing you more focused feedback. And then it's also part of a, a similar experience that's like helping remove tedium for your life. Like you're, you're grateful for it in a unique way. It's doing things that people can't do for you. It's doing something uniquely machine-like that's actually improving your life in, in ways that you maybe hadn't even thought possible. Well, and we yeah. know people are already forming emotional attachments for that reason. Like we've certainly seen that in, for example, the diary studies that we've done to see how people react when they're especially new to these conversational AIs. And um, people do seem to do seem to bond with them. This is and this is, by the way, not a new phenomenon. This like this phenomenon of people empathizing with and and feeling emotional attachment to computers. Um, one of the earliest documented instances was in the 1960s with a, a very simple psychotherapist application, which just would ask questions about keywords like, you know, oh, you, somebody says they're upset with their their parents. And then the, the bot responds and says, why is that important to you? Even with something as simple as that, no AI involved, like nothing very sophisticated, people still form emotional attachments to something as simple as that. Um, so that this is not a this is not a new phenomenon, and I think I think that will happen. I think what's unclear is you know what's what are the consequences for individuals and for society. Yeah, yeah, it, it's potentially likely that it will become like out of fashion to have systems pretend they're people. Um, I think it's already out of fashion. I mean, we've yeah, seen this with some of the studies we've done with AI chatbots. It is amazing how suspicious people are <laughs> of of any kind of chat. Like even if the, you know, it's clearly this person is, is interacting with the human on the other side. Um, we see that in our testing, users will be like, but I think this might be an AI. Yeah. So they're very so suspicious. We, we're going to evolve beyond it's just like skeuomorphism might be like well why are you showing me this grain I like I get it's a bookcase uh same thing here but like there's I, something, I get what this thing can do there's something even even like beyond that when it's a it, you know a, a, a digital button pretending to be a physical button might just kind of become annoying once you understand how it operates or unnecessary um, but when it's a AI pretending to be a human, people feel betrayed. They feel yeah. tricked. They feel yeah, like it's they've deceptive. been lied to. Yeah, it's very well, deceptive. Yeah, like the skeuomorphic gap now is you see a chat window, like a chat GPT window, and you know you can ask it anything. And that's kind of daunting because then you're like, well, what do I ask it? But as we get more accustomed to interacting with them and we kind of know more what they're capable yeah. of, and I suppose as they become more personalized, then you're not even really, yeah. you don't need that skeuomorphic element at all yeah. because you... It's so incorporated into your routine. It's a it's a funny um, thing we saw recently where um, it used to be that the way to test if something's a something's a human or a machine is to give it a complicated question and then see if it could answer um, a complicated task. And if it couldn't, it's a machine, right? And now you give it a complicated question and if it can answer it's a machine um this is so this you're like write me an essay on why you know uh, potato chips are worse for you than carrots and then it can rip out like five paragraphs in four seconds you're like that's definitely not a human 
<laughs> I know. I think, well, this is a perfect moment. Kate and I keep joking. There's, uh, I won't name names, but there's a, a AI research tool that uh, is a little too good. And we're just predicting that it's actually, you know, researchers in-house who are who are doing the analysis and it's like a it's wizard, AI. Of, wizard of Oz <laughs> behind this behind yeah. the scenes, and it's just funny because you you would yeah it would it's an SNL sketch in, in the making of yeah. some sort. Yeah. So I do sure. want to I do want to talk a little bit, Rob, like specifically about um, writing because this is something that I still am not super impressed with, and and I really would love um, to have tools that could accelerate, for example, the writing process at, at NNG. Yeah. And we're finding ways that they're helpful, like they're helpful for brainstorming and for, you know, sometimes for making a paragraph more plain language or more concise. Um, but I'm still seeing, like, I have a good sense for when something is AI written or not. Like, to me, I yeah. can still tell the difference. Yeah. Um, I still have not found that, for example, I know a lot of people enjoy using ChatGPT to like write emails or things like that for them. I find that like by the time I've written out the things I want it to cover, I could have just written, yeah. could have just written something myself. Yeah. And I think this might be because this is, this is where I have expertise and this is kind of like my passion. So something that I'm an expert in. And so like Sarah said earlier, you know, it's going to bring up the people who maybe struggle with different skills. Yeah, exactly. That can help yep. raise you're that the up. writer that they want to be. Um, well, I, you're not trying I, well, to be a better writer yourself. Um, I also think the difference Kate there is that most people can't tell the difference, right? Like I'm, it, it's like for Josh and Rob, I, basically use ideogram to make a few you know designed ux slogans and i put them up on linkedin and said which one of these did i make uh versus ai making the other five and uh, less than 50 percent got it right which and, offended her she was like well i'm like come on you. team like, like what like, <laughs> you know me <laughs> yeah well yeah well once i got over once i got over the ego hit um it, well, one, people tend to think that the one that a human designed uh, also kind of correlates to their favorite, um, which I had asked, which I think is interesting in general. Um, and then I think the other interesting thing is just blanket that most people can't tell the difference. And so, Kate, you may be able to read a paragraph and tell the difference, but most other people can't. Totally. And I think that that's kind of the convert. We're, we're getting into the nuanced uh kind of more sophisticated use of these tools by the yeah. people who can probably already do that task, but you, we're making them more efficient. Yeah. So I think I think this is something that like Sarah and I talk about a lot. Like we've talked about what role curation and taste and um, kind of judgment will play. And this kind of gets back to what you were saying, Rob, where we're just being presented with options and making choices. Uh, and it really feels like that is going to be a differentiator. However, it depends on who the audience is. You know, like maybe I don't like the content that ChatGPT tends to spit out, but, you know, maybe I'm I'm being overly picky. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see in a world where you can, you know, writing, for example, you can produce infinite amounts of, of content almost immediately with these tools. 
how does that impact what we consider to be good writing? Yeah, and I think it's story, right? Um, It's art. So so AI can paint. Who cares? I don't want to go see AI paintings. But I want to hear the backstory of the artist. Um, I want to hear how they got into art. I want to hear their struggles in life. I want to hear how that painting came to be and how that perspective exists. So Rob, I, love that, I think you're the, that I think you're the you. anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, you are not the user. <laughs> um, because I think, I think, you know, maybe, well, also you're a podcast host. So like, it would make sense that you're, you're very into stories, but I think there are so many cases where people just want the output and they want to move on. Um, so, you know, maybe people will want to, you know, we're, we're already seeing a piece, people appreciating AI generated art, even though there's yeah, no story. I, I think it. it's just a moment though. Like just imagine the abundance, like once there's so much text and so much art and it's all looks the same, it's all good. And all the text is good. Now we get into the, how do you decide N- now it's not about access to knowledge and information. It's limiting it filtering it now now what am i going to care about and what should i care about and it's all going to come down to stories because i'm going to care about the people i want to emulate and what they like and what they do not the machine that's trying to it it just it it assumes you know everybody's such an individual that they that that their likes are are defined internally um not influenced by the likes of others and you know we call it influencers for a reason right it's because most of us get our likes from other people but those people have to have a story attached so, to them that we care about so yeah there's going to be tons and tons of ai art out there and it's all going to be good and there's going to be tons and there's going to be so much text on the internet it's going to be unfathomable reading is going to be like nobody reads it's, well, nobody, nobody reads to already. Read. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're already there. Anybody. So I think, I think Rob, in a lot of ways, you're, you're right. Like storytelling or the personality who's, who's, you know, recommending something to you could be a differentiating factor. And there's probably going to be several of those. To me, this feels a lot like uh, the early days of eBooks and how the internet changed um, content in the sense of like, you know, suddenly anybody could publish their ideas. Anybody could put them online, could put them into an ebook format that people could download. And so there was a lot of discussion for those of you know, for you guys or for the listeners, anybody who was around during that debate or paying attention, there's a lot of discussion of like what role are um are these book publishing companies going to play in this new world. And in an era where you're flooded with information or you're flooded with options or you're flooded with content, you do need to have some organization Cur- or individual yeah, that's curation curating. Becomes, curation yeah. is, it's like, yeah. I keep saying this, curation is king. Content yeah. used to be king. Content's going to be so easy to create by everyone that it's going to be the curation of that. We're already seeing it in the migration back to newsletters yeah. uh, and roundups and and these tastemakers deciding what is worth it. And I think, Rob, stories certainly play into what may be deemed of good taste. Um, but I think there are also a lot of other pieces uh, beyond stories. And so I think that the name of the game is going to be curation and and what and and it may not, I don't think it is 
you know, in this conversation, I feel like we keep drawing this line, like AI or not, real relationships or not, a story or not. But I think there's a lot of gray space where they're going to be interwoven. And I, I think that even those things are going to have yeah. value in when AI is supplemental yeah. is really going to be, I think, yeah. the most interesting place. I think the the mental model people struggle with, um, and and I think a big part of it is because, you know, so much in history people have predicted abundance and it hasn't come it hasn't come to fruition, right? We're still not working the three day work week. Um so I think I, I think many, many people struggle with a world where the things that we perceive as scarce are just abundant and how that will change what we do and how we think. Um, we recently had uh, a conversation um, with one of the folks on the Lambda paper and we talked a lot about this, that like, what's the next innovation? And, and, and he was struggling to come up with it. And we find that pretty common that people struck struggle to go like, what's the next thing? And and one of the um, hypotheses around why this is so hard is because whenever we think of the next thing, we think of the next thing that will solve another productivity problem, how to do more work faster, how to get more things done. So what's the next thing that's going to help us get more things done when we have a robot that is a humanoid that can think faster than we like? You're like, oh, well, wait, maybe the next innovation isn't about productivity anymore. It's not a, that, that this was the last one. This is the final one in the chain of productivity innovations. And that we have to look sideways to like other things like connectivity between humans being the next innovation, something that connects us better and in a high quality way, not that gets more stuff done. But that it's actually... such an either or mindset, though. Like, I, yes. I really believe that they work in tandem um, in in the sense of there will always be the next productivity because, well, capitalism in general. Um, but then it it's that pendulum, you know, swing that I'm waiting for that then there's going to be this real user need, like capital P problem actually exists that then we're going to solve for. And you're right, Rob, that capital B problem is going to probably have to do with human to human connection. And so I think that that's kind of like this like interesting thing. And I don't think it's an either or it's these two things are going to rise together and it's going to cause, you know, these these shifts and new problems. Yeah, well, I think our, I think productivity. Our... I just think I mean, we, we likened it to mycelium and trees like people think trees will grow as big as they can and take as much space as they can. And that's not true. Right. Um, and uh, there's a lot of belief that nature will is competitive and will just consume uh, heartlessly anything. Um, but then you realize mycelium is a connectivity tissue and and that plants are talking to each other and they're coordinating and that there is a right sizing of a tree and there is a right sizing of a plant and that it is it is balanced. Right. It's not more, 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 more. And and if you go, well, maybe humans are really wired for more and more. Maybe that's not true. Maybe we do have a right sizing. Maybe the population is shrinking in advanced countries versus more babies. Like maybe maybe that perception that we're just going to keep wanting more and more and more is false. Look, I, I hope that's true. 
<laughs> I don't think we have we have that. I don't think that's backed up by by history. I mean, we are entering a totally unprecedented era in terms of like that productivity, but we have set up a lot of human structures and social and government and economic structures that rely on the increasing productivity, increasing generation of more, more, more. And, you know, the the best outcome I could see with AI is, yeah, it makes us more productive. We move to three-day work weeks. Suddenly, we have more free time to volunteer in our communities, to take care of our children and elderly, um, you know, to do those innately human things that AI cannot replace. That would be wonderful. I have a hard time seeing how we get from here to there without yeah. like substantial social economic upheaval. There only there is a possibility that work won't be a three day work week. That that's paradigm that wasn't worth thinking about. It's more like work changes. We we still work five days a week because because we gotta be busy. We gotta do something. We, our lives have to have purpose. But that what work is shifts so much that it doesn't resemble work in the past. It's just the same word. That would be great. <laughs> what, what were you gonna say, Josh? Oh well, we had a we had a conversation with Ben Gertzel, uh, and he he echoed sentiments I think similar to what you mentioned. Uh, Jacob Nielsen brought up that I think he's super optimistic about the future with AGI, but he is very uh, unoptimistic or pessimistic, I guess, about that like five to seven year yeah, road the getting there. And I think a lot of that has to do with probably like the way businesses decide, like big businesses, big businesses in particular decide to start integrating this. Um, and it makes me think, like you you were talking. Kate, on a podcast about uh, ROI and how maybe that's just kind of a broken term in a way, because within the UX space, you know, you're trying to attach financial outcomes that that kind of hinge on human behavior, which is hard to predict. And then now we're adding in this other layer of generative AI, which is also somewhat unpredictable uh, and putting that into the mix. And so so that term does start to feel outdated in that way. And then also like what, what you're talking about, like if we want to get to that work week the three-day work week or the the scenario where we're just like volunteering more, spending more time with people. Like we actually need businesses to sort of step up and do the right thing in this moment, which seems really difficult They're not, they're to not incentivized to do that, right? Like with, yeah. you know, and there have been movements to try to, you know, make business leadership more accountable to all stakeholders, including like, you know, the community that they impact. Um, but that's still that still isn't happening. They're still accountable to shareholders, and that's the the primary driver that is going to impact decision making. So, yeah, like if if you know if I'm making decisions for a business, which Sarah and I often are for Nielsen Norman Group, but if it was a much larger company, let's say, and suddenly I have AI tools that can produce far more than my human workforce and require a lot less investment from my company. If I'm only accountable to shareholders, that's kind of a no-brainer. Why would I not make that trade? Yeah. Yeah, the shift would have to be more accountable to employees and shareholders. Um, and so, yeah, the values of a company, you know, has to shift from shareholder. Well, there have to be like a, yeah, like a huge seismic shift, right? Yeah, like shareholder, customer, employee to employee, customer, shareholder. And I don't um, think we're just talking about one company here. We're talking about all companies, which, yeah. you know, in a yeah. capitalist system are yeah. some of the most influential factors. So, 
Yeah, what we, what veer happen out is... of, we were veering out of AI into like a very philosophical, <laughs> you know, political conversation. Yeah, it's it's that so hard to not here. to because um, there's a company out there uh, called Workday, and uh, most people know of it in the sort of enterprise space. And they, I, I find it, them fascinating in a way because um, they sell HR software, so their reputation as an employer matters so much, right? As they're trying to sell their software, if if their employees, you know, if their score on Glassdoor is terrible, who's going to buy their software? So they well, have this like puzzle, right? Where they've got to, they've got to maintain a, um, a really good relationship and, and create a great experience for their customers. I mean, for, with, for their employees so that they can gain customers. Yeah. And I just sort of see That's... it as a micro moment of like, could that become more important? as a value of a company, how, how employees view them? Yeah. Could that become that's a pretty more primary? Old prin that's a pretty old principle of service design, which is that we're going to create uh, the internal processes and the way that we create our end experience as our priority. And then thus what we deliver is going to be of higher value. And the oldest um, or like the OG example and case study in that was Danny Myers with uh Shake Shack and the whole restaurant group in general, where they removed, you know, there's such a big discrepancy between front of house staff and back of house staff and tipping. And so they basically kind of reswizzled how they compensate and organize so that it feels way more of a team effort. And then uh, the result of that was uh, pulling top talent. And so that's, I think, uh, you know, it's original example of you know creating somewhere that people want to work creates better product and i i think that there's that balance but at the end of the day you're still hoping that that the majority of true top talent cares about where they're working and not just money yeah. right and so it's this like interesting i think and also, balance how much top talent do you really need in a world where you can produce so much with so little and you really just need your workforce to be to have that judgment or be those curators and make those decisions that are offered up by these tools yeah well, yeah it seems I, like we need like a, a breakthrough moment right like we we talked with uh lee hood and nathan price uh from the institute for systems biology and they're i think their gambit around kind of disrupting the healthcare industry was like the idea that maybe this technology can contribute to a radical new cure for cancer, for instance, that is so compelling and so linked to their kind of four P's of like preventative medicine and things that it makes the old way impossible. It just like obliterates it immediately because people realize like, oh, there's this whole other way that I could be approaching healthcare and then we could be treating illness. And it it's like so seismic that it really just destroys everything else in a way. And so yeah. it feels like maybe that needs to happen in business sectors, but but there's also this element that like being the business that does that, you're also sort of like falling on the sword a bit too, because you are having to give up like the whole stakeholder relationship. Like your stakeholder, like kind of like Patagonia did, right? Like their, their stakeholder is now the planet and they don't care about like keeping money within the company as much because, I mean, I guess it's like that long view. It's like, what's the point of sitting on a pile of money if there's no world left or systems left within which to spend it. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great kind of um, 
example. So my my husband is an environmental engineer, and um, he spent he says he he um, works for the bad guys. <laughs> he works in remediation, so he helps companies clean up the damage they've already done. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because they have to, <laughs> and they're going to do the minimum amount. Like they're going to spend the least amount they possibly can to comply with the letter of the law. So why is that happening? Is it because all the people that work for that company don't care about the environment? No, it's because that's what they're incentivized to do. So I do think it all comes down to, you know, what what's the incentive? And in Patagonia's um, case, you know, that was a decision made by somebody who just had those values and wanted to see the company um, follow follow those values. And so that is setting up an incentive system to make that happen. Yeah. And it also has to do with education. I know you had Don on and he talks quite frequently about the circular economy. And I know design education is really thinking about how you train future designers to think about that whole system. Both, I think service design design is actually just a piece of that, but then it's, you know, the whole feedback loop and existence of how that thing that you're producing comes um, comes to fruition. And so I think you, to to think 10 years in the road, obviously, we've talked a lot about technology, but I also think that I, hopefully we've gotten to a place where these designers and people making really big decisions are not only incentivized, Kate, I think that's probably the most important, but actually know how to think about the system and all the different effects uh, of the decisions that they're making. Yeah. I think it's interesting that this invention happened during covid that we invented a way to talk to machines while we were separated from other people. <laughs> um, it, it feels I, obvious, actually. I, I was it, it on I, purpose? I, I think it, yeah. In hindsight, I think people are going to think it was on purpose that we did yeah. this on purpose. Yeah. Um, but those, in, whole those of us in the space know that that's not the case. It was just a, a coincidence. But one thing that COVID demonstrated to me is that people can change fast i mean we adapted what a what a ridiculous change that like all of a sudden you can't go in your office that's it i have to be properly motivated i think there was probably (laughs) very few there are probably very few scenarios that would have achieved that level of change and nielsen norman group is a great example of that we had talked about can we do our training online and we had always thought oh no it's probably not going to be a good experience we had to turn in two weeks, we had to turn an in-person event into virtual and we nailed it. <laughs> and now, and now <laughs> that's how we <laughs> offer our training and that's what people prefer. But we had to be kind of put in a position where we were forced to adapt. So I agree, Rob. I think people can change. I think they are going to change to adapt to AI, but it's going to be interesting to see how that They're going to complain a lot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. One thing we can say about there's also gonna, they, they do there's going to be a lot of mistakes. I think there's oh, yeah. going to be a lot of mistakes by the people who design, by the people who make these business decisions, and also by users. And I think some of these mistakes are going to be really big. Yeah. Um, and we may not realize they're a mistake until after the fact. So buckle up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Don too. I, I mean, I think, I think he maybe made the point on this podcast, but if not, I'll paraphrase and make it now. But like, with as these tools become more prevalent and powerful, essentially anyone who's interacting with them becomes a designer. 
because you're most often going to be designing essentially software solutions, okay. disposable probably software solutions that are meant for your life or your, you know, your circle. And so it's probably really important that more and more people understand the ideas behind design thinking and understand the other aspects of the technology that are maybe less, you know, exciting, like, you know, yeah. how it works on the back end to some degree. Yeah, I think, I think the implications, that's, that's always the tough one for us. So self-driving cars, like, oh, you mean I'll get in my car and say, take me to work and it will just take me to work and I can read a book on the way. Um, and it's funny for like, for me, there's so, so many things wrong with that. Um, mostly that I get car sick if I read in the car. Uh, but, but what folks aren't thinking about is that car ownership is in question and that if you own a car, it might be out there running Uber rides and making money for you. Um, and because it can drive itself and it's picking up stuff that it thinks you need. And, um, and, and that, and, and a lot of folks are like, ah, oh, it's going to take a long time for that change. But then you go, okay, so like, imagine I work as the head of transportation for a city, you know, bus system and self-driving buses are on the horizon. Am I not going to look at self-driving buses as like, am I going to keep buying the old buses that need bus drivers and, or am I going to start looking at self-driving buses? And then if I look at self-driving buses, am I going to be like, well, why do they need to be buses? Why can't they just be cars now? Cause I don't have to put a bus driver in them. So maybe I don't need buses anymore and I can have people picked up in a couple of minutes. And then you're like, and I don't need bus stops anymore. Cause they could just pick them up at home. And then they don't need cars anymore because the public transportation system, like, and we just don't think like these implications of the technology and that, you know, with, with one technology like self-driving and how that's going to influence things. But then there's, there's that times 10 other technologies that are evolving that are going to coincide and influence that one. And it's going to create um, this world that, that is not uh, actionable or or something we can imagine within our current mental model. So we keep we keep carrying the mental model around us, and then we we navigate through this one technology, and then we imagine this new world as if everything else stays stationary, and only yeah. self driving cars emerge. But then we're yeah. like, no. But now there's robots that have yeah. So well, and our technology has always been disruptive this is going to be by far the most disruptive we've seen in our lifetimes. And that's saying something after, mm -hmm. after you know, everything we've seen. Um, and I think it is really hard to, to plan out what those outcomes are going to be. And we just, we just won't know until things start to shift and start to change. One of, um, I recently heard someone say that, that AI is both overhyped and underhyped. And I think I think that is definitely true. And I think it's in some ways underhyped in in what you just said, Rob, the fact that like there's going to be implications and ripple effects from this that we just cannot anticipate. Some of those are going to be positive. Um, some of those are going to be negative. Yeah, yeah. there'll be the, the companies that that buy a fleet of self-driving buses and then the ones that look a little further down the line and decide to redesign the system a bit. 
uh, well, are, yeah, and, and decide ahead. to collaborate with urban planners. You know, like exactly. as you start to think about this ripple effect, it also moves outside a specific realm of expertise, and it starts to ripple into all these other expertise and realms of thought and study. And I think that that is. I mean, I come back to design education and really education of any type of critical problem solver, which is what also needs reform uh, in general if we're actually going to train people to make the right decisions for us in the way that they're going to impact masses of people. Yeah. Are there are there use cases that, that you've come across in some of your research and work that you think are maybe both attractive to designers, but also might be good for kind of priming their minds for this kind of new design paradigm where you're because I mean designers I think typically are, are a little better at taking the long view than other people but uh as, as Rob mentioned earlier sometimes designers can get caught up in features and things that might not ever even come to much use but now they have an opportunity right to like yeah. kind of yeah. attack these things in a new way I, I think you're you're right Josh I think that designers have always been pretty good at taking the long point of view and whatnot. What I don't think designers or researchers have been very good at is advocating uh, for the right things to be done. And so, the Rob, you were uh, complaining, for lack of a better word, <laughs> of you know, the feature bloat in a lot of the common products we use. And those aren't there because designers thought they would be best. They're there because a stakeholder wanted them to be there. And I think that in terms of preparing ourselves and anyone listening, for what's coming and the, the people who are going to be most successful, both in traditional terms of success, fame, money, job opportunities, but also success in terms of uh, ethics and decision making uh, and kind of a strong set of principles are going to be someone who can communicate and translate what they know and their expertise and the impact they understand something to have and make the case to the people who make those decisions. Um, and I think previously, we've been in a world where there's, it's very few people can speak both fluently. Yeah. I see a lot of companies, um, and I'm, I'm just hyper aware of it now, the customers are that are just big, big organizations that have been around a while. And I can see that one of, one of the you know, primary drivers of their success is the company's culture and ability to get people to do things they don't want to do. They just, that's their, that's their secret sauce, right? They're, they have a, you know, a structure of pressure and competition to drive productivity out of their staff. And, um, and then that's, that's something they're able to do at scale. And you're like, wow, okay. That's their leadership now reflects, you know, that, that culture and that capability. They're authoritarian, they're aggressive, they're structured and, and they sort of drive and push, um, people. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that, you know, whether it's positive, like a coach drives their team, um, or whether it's, you know, oppressive it, either way, they found their way to get the most productivity out of their labor force. Um, and and we go, is that the culture that's going to thrive in a world where, you know, labor is taken for granted? Is that, you know, it, like you said, is it, it, does, 
does the shift now happen where creativity and the creative folks have a bigger voice at the table now because that's what matters more and that that being able to push people to do stuff they don't want to do is not the is not the way to you know to succeed anymore um or obviously i'm speaking in black and whites in a completely gray neighborhood but yeah yeah that would be a great outcome one of the things i'm a bit concerned about right now is uh the impact that ai is going to have on uh user research so yeah, it's a pretty rough time for UX researchers right now in, in our field. Um, a lot of them have been laid off as budgets have gotten um, tighter in a lot of tech companies. Unfortunately, researchers in many cases are the, have been the first to go. And, um, you know, yeah, I find, isn't that as crazy? A, yeah, I know. As, as a, you know, a researcher, I find that really disappointing. Um, and what I find even more concerning is that I'm seeing more and more tools being put on the market basically saying your research can be automated by AI entirely <laughs> or even as extreme as you don't even need real users. Just use these AI generated users and they'll give you feedback on your product, which right. just like undermines like everything that we believe in UX. Yeah, and so it's, you know, it's that's checkbox research. Like I could check yes. the box. I did research, but yes, it informed nothing. Yes. <laughs> so that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a lack of understanding of what the purpose of research is and, yeah. and how it works. And and that's just, we... I think, a symptom of the fact that UX in general is just, for most companies, it's not like Apple. It's it's a checkbox item. And yeah. the, the, re, the UX folks are brought in to check a box. They don't really have power. They don't really have influence. They're not given agency within the organization. They fight just to be heard. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to skinning an app, you know, and making it look cool. Uh, and and I, I'm really hopeful on this front because we do a lot of user research, watching people interact with conversation. And it real gets people. deeper now. Yeah, it gets real people. Um, it, it gets much deeper now because words words are so powerful and words can be interpreted in so many different ways. And, um, and so there's so much nuance and texture now, uh, and, and it's how nuance. you make someone feel and how you, and how you want them to feel and, and, yeah. and how to recognize certain personas. And now you can talk to different personas in different voices. And I just feel like, I, I hope, I really, really hope that, that this is just a calm before the storm. Like it's, it's all of a sudden going to crack open when we don't have a single UI for all of your people that use it. And now we have to get into this nuance. All of a sudden, it's just going to be a huge puzzle and, and that the rewards will be there. Because if you talk to me in my voice, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, respond in kind and, um, and there's so much influence. I mean, we, we have one of the folks on our team is a professor. And one of the things he studies is just how even when you communicate with other people that we, the frequency of our voice, we harmonize. Like that's how much we sort of mirror in a, uh, each other, that even at the harmonic level. Um, and so now you think, oh, man, so that means that we're going to have AIs talking to people and people 
will will morph and start start mirroring the behavior of the AI, and that and that that can allow you to to create certain experiences for certain people that you know that are going to be uh, yeah. much more hyper personalized and. Oh yeah, Rob. We're not going to be reading the same news article in a year or two. It's gonna it's gonna be tailored to you and tailored to me. And I think regu- regulations around this type of thing are going to be way too yeah. slow. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, before... I don't even know how how useful they'll be regulating yeah, I... guns. So when you say that, Sarah, like the immediate thing I think is like the echo chambers that have have been created yeah. purely from social media, which it hasn't even been that nearly as sophisticated as what AI will get. They're yeah. just going to get smarter. Yeah, they, those echo chambers are going to get deeper. Again, yeah. I'm, I keep thinking about like the societal effects. We've seen how detrimental that can be for society. So I, I do worry about that as well. Yeah. I yeah, think I've heard if, like journalistic if, bodies talking about, or the idea that like newspapers in that scenario, right? They're not like writing the news anymore, but really what they're doing now is being able to determine what's real and what's fake and what's yeah. generated and what's like comes from an actual source, which is yeah, actually insanely yep. difficult, but I guess at least they're somewhat up to the yeah. task because they're sort of yeah. already steeped in it. I think, I think one area of user research that I think is going to blow up is um, understanding that uh, there's an overfitting problem in AI that if you provide it too much context, that it it's like providing it no context. And there's a right size of context for these systems. And, and not all context is equal. Right. Either, right. There's some strong stereotypes occurring yes. that make some contexts much yeah. stronger than others. These, and so deciding what context do, should do matter and what does it. Yeah. To these tools, all context is equal. If you include a detail in a prompt to chat GPT, it's going right. to follow that. It's well, going to assume that's important. It, yes, but no, right? Like it, the user is putting them in as equal, but if one of those contextual words have a stronger stereotype, then its delivery is going to be stronger because that word has a stronger stereotype in the model. Yeah. It's um. so now like designing the right context for the right experience. So I'm resetting my password. What's the context to give the LLM for that versus I'm wanting to order a pair of shoes? What's the right context to give the LLM for that? It's just a new a new and frankly fun kind of research and experimentation that isn't like, is this button obvious? Can people find it? How many people clicked on it? And um, that's why that's why user research is going to be more important now than ever before. Exactly. So now is yeah. not the time to cut your research. No, it's nuts. <laughs> well, in research, it won't just be like preemptive, right? You're not going to like you'll research before you launch a product, but then the research cycle can continue through feedback, yeah. lines, it can right? Be because now you're able yeah. to, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's what I hope for user research. I hope that this just allows us to amplify the amount that we're learning to reduce redundancy, to make it more affordable for companies so that they do want to invest in it. Um, so that would be the the optimistic outcome. And hopefully yeah. that's where we land in a few years. And maybe this is exactly what you were m- mentioning earlier, the fear and the reality that the transition is not going to be fun. And we see a transition from old UIs to new UI, and we're caught in the trough where no one's hiring researchers for the new UIs. 
because it's so immature. I can't tell you how many companies built conversational UIs right now with just skipping design entirely. It's probably 90%. And I can't believe it's happening. I like, did we not learn our lesson? <laughs> I cannot believe that we are repeating this again, like designing a website that doesn't have a designer. I, I, it's beyond me. They're just I feel throwing you. away I all of their practices going, oh, we don't need to design this. Everyone's a conversation designer because we all talk. I know. Madness. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like we could we could continue this conversation yeah. for another yeah. ninety minutes. This is great, so. guys. This is <laughs> fun. Uh, this really, fun. really appreciate you joining us. Thanks Wandered again. around. I feel like cur curation is king is probably the title in the making. Yes. Why don't you say say it You've again? Just done say some of my work for me. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say it one more so time. This, so, Wait, Sarah. So say what it I'm one more. <laughs> say it one more time <laughs> and say curation is key because somebody just posted about context is king. There's like oh. a whole side anyway. Okay. Cut this right. out, editor. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is curation is key. All yes. Right. Yes. Nice button. Here, here. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for joining this ongoing conversation about conversational AI. Be sure to subscribe to Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also watch these conversations on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. This podcast is produced for UX Magazine in partnership with OneReach.ai. Over the past five years, our team of nearly 200 engineers, scientists, experienced designers, anthropologists, and linguists have been developing Generative Studio X, an award-winning platform that has the lone distinction of being named a leader by every major analyst group. GSX is a complete environment for hosting, creating, analyzing, and scaling your own digital teammates, called Intelligent Digital Workers. For an interactive demo of IDWs in action and to learn more about the GSX platform, head to onereach.ai. This podcast would not be possible without the hard work and dedication of executive producer Elias Parker and producer Kate Timchenko. Our video and audio editor is Michael Litvinov, and we rely on support from the marketing team at onereach.ai, including Allison Harshberger, Anastasia Nechtalio, and Vera Prokodko. Thanks again, and we look forward to connecting with you next week right here on Invisible Machines.